I'm going to be reading the scriptures during the message um, as we're going to be looking at three main passages. So um, we'll, we'll not read the scripture here up front, but I want to talk today about the subject of who needs the church. I grew up in a home where our family was in church every Sunday morning every Sunday night and every Wednesday night for midweek prayer service. And at home in a drawer somewhere, I have a pin that dangles down uh, for perfect attendance in Sunday school for seven years. Uh, I think I actually did eight or nine years perfect, but only got the the badge for seven. But that meant every Sunday I was in Sunday school unless we were on vacation, and then I had to bring a bulletin from the church we visited on vacation to prove that I had not skipped a Sunday. Um, Some of you think that's kind of weird, but that used to be the norm among Christians. It really did. It used to be what almost all Christians did, is they were in church every single Sunday, I have read recently that now many who claim to be committed Christians think that they're really committed if they attend church two or maybe three Sundays out of a month. That's the bar that they say, yep, that means I'm really committed. Uh, In my day growing up, we would have said they're kind of nominal because they aren't here every week. Uh, There are many other Others in our country who claim to be Christian, but really they want nothing to do with the church. They find it irrelevant. They find it boring. Um, Going to church messes up a nice weekend off that they feel they deserve and need. And um, many, of course, have been wounded by church or churches. And they just say, you know, I'm tired of hammering my thumb with a hammer, and uh, I think I'll just kind of drop out for a while and veg out, and they don't want anything to do with the church, and so their thought is, well, yeah, who needs it? Many, many others, I find, and this is the more common view among Christians, for them, church is a nice slice of life. It helps kind of round out the whole, but it's not the core. It's not the center. It's not essential. And self-fulfillment and happiness are at the center. And so to the extent that the church helps somebody be self-fulfilled and happy, yeah, yeah, let's include that in the pie. But if for some reason it works counter to those goals or interferes with them, then they either shop around for a new church as we saw last week on that short video, or they just drop out altogether. Uh, Many, many years ago in California, I was having breakfast with one of our elders, and this man held a top administrative position in a national, international evangelistic organization. And uh, as we were chatting, I took a napkin and I, I drew a circle a larger circle, and then a smaller circle in the middle. And then I drew pie-shaped pieces coming out from that center. 
And I explained to him that many Christians view the church as one piece of the pie, um, but it's not in the center or the hub. And then I went to Matthew 6.33, a verse that should be familiar to all of you, where uh, Jesus tells us to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And I explained to him that seeking first God's kingdom, which now is expressed through the church, means that that needs to be in the center. It can't be peripheral. It can't be just one piece of the pie. It needs to be at the hub where everything we do in life radiates out from and is related to that that core, that center of advancing Christ's kingdom. And even though this elder had been through many, many hours of biblical training, had heard some of the top Bible teachers in the country, he looked at that drawing of mine and he said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. It was brand new to him. Now what I'm going to argue in this message is that Christ and his church, the body and head are one, should be essential in your life, not just nice. It should be at the core of who you are and how you think and what you do. Not, yeah, it's a nice add-on if I'm not doing anything better on the weekend. And it should govern everything in our schedule. Say, that's kind of radical. Yeah. Jesus had a way of being kind of radical. The late Anglican preacher John Stott put it this way. He said, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central in our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center So I want to share with you three reasons why the church is of utmost importance and thus why you need the church. First reason, the church is important because Christ promised to build it. And secondly, because Christ loves his church and gave his life for her. And then thirdly, because the church reveals him to the lost world. So those three things. The church is important because Christ promised to build it. It's important because he loves it, gave his life for her, and the church is the means that he has chosen to reveal himself to the lost world. Those first two reasons especially impacted me when I was a young man in my 20s. I just could not shake those two things, that Jesus had promised to build his church, and I thought, wow, that means it's going to succeed. It will be built because Christ promised to build it, and uh, I wanted to be a part of helping build his church. You know, I mean, if you go into a business venture, eh, it may succeed, it may not, but the church there, there's no doubt it will succeed. Maybe not always the way we think in a particular situation or whatever, but overall it is a vision, a goal that Jesus said, I'm going to do this. 
And then the second one, if Christ loved the church enough to die for her, and I love Christ, I thought then, uh, I've got to love his church. You know, if I walked up to you and said, uh, man, you got a cool head, but I think your body stinks, uh, you'd kind of be offended by that, I trust, and rightly so. But there are a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm all for Jesus, but I can't stand his church. It's his body. Or same thing, you know, if I, you're married and I said, you know, you're cool, but man, I just can't get along with your wife. Well, again, that's offensive because every husband loves his wife and for somebody to say that is offensive. And yet again, a lot of Christians do that. So really, it was the Lord's impressing those two truths on me that explain why I'm doing what I've been doing for the last 40 years of being committed to the local church. So let's look at the three reasons. First of all, the church is important because Christ promised to build it. In Matthew 16, here is our text. And in verse 13 of Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And uh, they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the most crucial question that every single person needs to ask himself or herself. If you've never asked yourself this question, uh, you're on the wrong track. And the question is this, but who do you say that I am? Your answer to that question determines your eternal destiny. If you get it wrong, there are many, many dear people who have that question wrong. They're in cults that deny the deity of Jesus. You get it wrong, you're not going to heaven. You have to answer it correctly. And then Peter gave his well-known answer in Matthew 16, 16. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that means the son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Uh, Many sermons in that text, but let me just point out four things there, four reasons why the church is important. First of all, the church is important because it belongs to Christ and not to us. You notice that Jesus said, I will build my church. My church. And that means it's not my church. And it's not your church. Uh, Christ bought it with his blood, and so he owns it. It's his church. And that means that no one, I don't care how influential the person is, I don't care how much money he or she donates to the church, 
I don't care how long his or her ancestors have been members of a particular church. It's not their church. And I don't care how powerful a pastor is. It's not his church. It's Christ's church. And we're all under his headship. And we're only given the privilege of trying to help that church be all that he wants it to be. But we can't own it. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. The second thing that that text shows us is the church is important because it's built on the right understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter here is under direct revelation from God the Father, as Jesus says. You didn't figure this out, Peter. Uh, My Father in heaven revealed it to you. And he proclaims in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the Christ means that he is the Jewish Messiah. The word Messiah is anointed one in Hebrew. Christ is anointed one in Greek. It means that he is the one God anointed and appointed to be the king and the savior. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus before he was born, hundreds of years before he was born, prophesying him to be God's anointed one. For example, we don't have time to read these. You can read them later. But Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 both predict the suffering of Messiah and his dying in the place of sinners. Psalm 22 is a um, description of death by crucifixion hundreds of years before it was known. Isaiah 53, a very well-known passage, talks about Jesus being the lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. Psalm 2 and Daniel 7 both predict that Jesus is the anointed one who will be given an eternal kingdom. And will rule. Psalm 110 reveals Messiah to be both David's son and David's Lord. Or Zechariah 12.10. The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on, notice, look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly like over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That verse in one nutshell proclaims the deity of Messiah. They will look on me, whom they pierced. This is the Lord speaking. It shows his death. He was pierced for our sins. It shows his resurrection. They're going to look on him, and he isn't going to be a corpse. He's risen. And it shows his future coming. That's when they will look on him, is when he comes again bodily. And uh, so just an example again of one verse. It also predicts what Paul talks about in Romans 11, a widespread conversion of the Jewish people in the end times. And if we had time, we could go to dozens more prophecies that Jesus either has fulfilled or will yet fulfill. Now, when Peter pronounces Jesus to be the son of the living God, it may be a parallel way of saying he is the Messiah, but it also reveals Jesus to be the second person 
of the Trinity, eternal God in human flesh. How else could David's son at the same time be David's Lord? Jesus brings that conundrum up with the Pharisees in uh, the final week of his life, and they couldn't answer his question. Uh, The only way is if he is the eternal Lord God. In the Gospels, when Jesus walked on the water and then instantly stilled the storm. It says in Matthew 14:33 that the disciples worshiped him saying, "You are certainly God's son." Now you don't worship anyone other than God. You don't worship the angels. You don't worship anything other than the Lord God, especially for the Jews who were very reverent to reverence the very name of God. They wouldn't even say it. But they worshipped him. And Jesus didn't do as Peter did when Cornelius fell down and worshipped him. He said, get up, get up, I'm just a man. He didn't do that. As always, Jesus accepted full worship and he affirmed their testimony. He does that all through the Gospels. Now, as you probably know, the verses I read, though, raised three controversial issues. And I need to cover those uh, briefly. Uh, The first one is, well, who or what is the rock on which Jesus is going to build his kingdom? Uh, What are the gates of hell or Hades? And then thirdly, what does Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing that are related to those keys? Um, Going back to the first question, when Jesus says, your name is Peter and on this rock I will build my church, Uh, There are three main interpretations of those words. One is that Peter himself is the rock, and that is the main view of the Roman Catholic Church. They view Peter as the first pope, and uh, that he is the first of a direct line of successors to his office, the popes, and the priests who were under them. There are even a few reputable scholars who are Protestant who identify Peter as the rock, but only in the sense that he was, excuse me, he was the first to make that confession and that um, he became with the other apostles and prophets the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2.20 says. But these scholars make it clear there is absolutely nothing in the text that says that Peter has primacy over the other apostles or that his successors do, and nothing in the rest of the New Testament on that either. The second view is that Peter's confession is the rock, and that's the main view among Protestant scholars. Interestingly, though, even some early Roman Catholic fathers um, make that, uh, take that view. Chrysostom, who was an early church father, said, He did not say upon Peter, for it was not upon the man, but upon his faith. And I think that view makes the most sense that Peter's confession of Christ is the rock on which he'll build his church. The third view is somewhat similar, and that is that Christ himself is the rock. Uh, That's, in effect, what the second view is saying, but it narrows it down 
to Jesus being the rock and that Jesus was making a pun. As you probably know, the name Peter means rock. Uh, The word that Jesus used for rock was a different noun, and it can mean either bedrock or foundations uh, rock. And in favor of that view, there's the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 7 about the need to build your house on the rock, which is Christ. Um, There's also in Matthew 21 where Jesus refers to himself as the uh, stone which the builders rejected, which became the chief cornerstone. And then um, uh, there is just the truth, as I said, that nowhere in the New Testament does Peter say he is the rock, or does the New Testament say Peter is the rock. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter again says that we come to a living stone, and we're built up on him as living stones in a holy temple to the Lord. He's talking about Jesus again as the rock. Now, what it means is this. It is of utmost importance for us as the church to maintain, proclaim, and uphold the person of Jesus Christ, especially in times when that is under attack, as it always has been. Um, the cults, as I said, and even liberal Protestant churches, they deny the deity of Jesus. And if Jesus isn't fully God, then Jesus isn't a savior. You may remember a quote that I've given you before from Bishop Moule, um, a godly Anglican bishop of the last uh, century. He said this, a savior not quite God, is a bridge broken at the farther end. He's not going to get you across. He has to be fully God and fully man to be our Savior. Now, what did Jesus mean um, when uh, he said to Peter that he'll give him the keys of the kingdom? Um, Well, I think... Uh, and then also the binding and loosing. I think that leads us to a third truth, and that is the church is important because it has the authority to proclaim God's only way of salvation to this world that is under his judgment. Now, by the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing, the Roman Catholic Church interprets that to mean that Peter and his successors, the Pope and Uh, priests who are under the Pope, have the authority to forgive or retain someone's sins. They can pronounce authoritatively, I say your sins are forgiven. No, your sins are retained. The problem with that view is no one knows someone else's heart. We have a hard time knowing our own hearts, don't we? And I can't say that to anybody. You know, I proclaim your sins are forgiven. I don't know their heart before God. And I would argue no man can do that. I think rather that what he meant was that Peter, representing the apostles and the successors to the apostles, which is all believers, that we have the authority to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness of sins to every person who will repent and believe in Jesus. 
we can say authoritatively to every sinner, if you will come before God and confess your sins to him and trust in Jesus as your only mediator between you and God, God promises your sins are forgiven. And we see Peter doing that with the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We see him doing it with the Samaritans in Acts 8. And we see him doing it with the Gentiles in Acts 10 when he goes to the home of Cornelius. And then we have the apostolic testimony to God's way of salvation in the New Testament, the gospel of the grace of God through Christ, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection. That is the message the apostles proclaimed. And so we can go into the world and authoritatively proclaim, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but has eternal life. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, We are saved not by works, but by grace through faith alone. That's the message of the gospel that the church now has the authority to proclaim uh, to all people. And, of course, the opposite. Those who do not believe are under God's condemnation and judgment. So that's how I understand um, the keys of the kingdom. But there's one other issue, and that is um, the whole thing of the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church. And I believe that shows us the fourth reason the church is important, and that is because Christ is coming back for it, and the church alone is going to be remaining after this present evil world comes under judgment. Verse 18 again, Jesus promises, I will build my church And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, what did he mean? Well, many reputable scholars say because gates is kind of a passive idea. You know, it's a defense from the enemy breaking into a city uh, and not an aggressive force. They say, well, the gates represent death. Um, And so even the power of death cannot stop Jesus' church from final victory. I think they're missing something when they argue that. I believe that in the New Testament, well, and in the Old, the gates of the city represent the power of authority. The the city officials would conduct business at the city gate. It was like City Hall or on a national level like the White House. And so it's an expression, a figure of speech, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, much as if we said, well, the White House said today, da-da-da. We mean the government authorities uh, made this pronouncement today. And so I understand the gates of hell to be representative of the power of Satan worldwide will not, cannot defeat Christ's church. Now, that's a tremendous promise. And we look around and we say, well, wait a minute. Man, I've known all kinds of churches that have failed. They've disintegrated through church splits, through internal problems, through moral failure, whatever. You look around and there have been evil rulers who have sought to stamp out the church through persecution and sometimes seemingly for a while have succeeded. 
Uh, atheistic communism, as you probably know, sought to uh, eliminate Christianity wherever it was in power. Um, still is doing that in North Korea and other places. Islam spread over North Africa and wiped out the church there for centuries. Uh, you have Hinduism dominating in India. Buddhism is still prevailing in Southeast Asia and so on. And yet, here's what Jesus prophesied, Matthew 24, 14. He said, this gospel of the kingdom, that is the rule of Jesus, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And uh, the Bible is clear that this present evil world is going to perish under God's judgment, and then as Revelation 11.15 proclaims, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the church is important in the first place then because Christ promised to build it, and his promise will not fail. It is going to win in the long run in spite of uh, what we see sometimes of temporary setbacks. And that means when you commit yourself to the local church, you're committing yourself to the only cause in this world that is guaranteed to succeed. It will succeed. A second reason the church is important is because Christ loves her and gave himself his life for her. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial, complete, total sacrificial love. And then Paul goes on in verses 28 to 30 there, and he promises or states this. He says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so he he presents there the two analogies we looked at last week. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And he tenderly nourishes, cherishes, cares for it, and ultimately gave his very life for the church's good. And so that means this. If Christ loved the church enough to die for her, and I love Christ, I've got to love his church. I've got to love his church. John Calvin put it this way. He said, separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. It's a pretty radical statement. Separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. And then he adds, referring to our text in Ephesians 5, he said, nor can any more atrocious crime be conceived of, be conceived than for us by sacrilegious disloyalty to violate the marriage that the only begotten Son of God has deigned to contract with us. In other words, we're his wife. And if we walk away from the church, we're walking away from Christ as our bridegroom. And Calvin says that's the most atrocious crime you can conceive of. 
Now, let's be honest. Loving the church in the abstract is a piece of cake. It's really easy. Oh, I love the church. Maybe you've heard the little ditty, to dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know. Well, that's a different story. And that's really true, isn't it? That's where the nitty-gritty comes in loving the church. What about this guy? He's obnoxious. Or, you hear what she said about me? You know, those kinds of squabbles that take place. They were taking place in the New Testament. Paul in Philippians. Wouldn't you like to be named Yodia or Syntyche? You know, Paul names those two sisters and says, I urge them, get along in the Lord. They were having trouble together. Uh, but that's the part of loving the church. You've got to love the warts and all. And, you know, there are warts and worse. <laughs> but you've got to work through it. And uh, that's how we grow as Christians, learning to deal with our differences in a biblical way. So we've got to love the saints we know, not just the ones out there in the abstract or the ones who are already glorified in heaven. But as I said, that's one reason I am a pastor is I thought if I love Christ and Christ loves the church, I've got to love the church. I just can't get away from that. So first reason you need the church is because Christ promised to build it. Second reason you need the church is because Christ loves it and gave himself for her. And if you love Christ, you've got to love his church. The third reason is the church is important because it reveals Christ and his glory to this lost world. And here I am focusing on Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, where Paul says to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. I love that phrase. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those verses scrape the heavens, okay? And uh, I think I have two messages on those verses in the, on the church website. One dealing with God's eternal purpose and you, which you can read. But I'm just going to skim here uh, a couple of thoughts. What Paul is saying is the church is God's means of achieving his eternal purpose, which is to exalt Jesus Christ above everything. That's God's goal. Why he created this world to bring glory to himself through the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son and proclaiming that truth worldwide so that all will someday who believe in Jesus, be gathered before that throne in heaven, singing praises to the Lamb. That's what God is doing in history. And Paul goes further than say that, that the church reveals 
the unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, but even more to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I think that means to all the angelic and demonic forces through the church will know that Christ is Lord. I can't go there this morning. That message I referred to touches on that. But I just want to reveal two thoughts here as we um, conclude. First of all, to reveal Christ in his glory. Uh, We have to proclaim and uphold God's word of truth in this relativistic world. Last week I touched on the fact that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16 proclaims that. And God's word is abundantly clear that there is this clearly defined body of spiritual truth about God, about Jesus, about man, about salvation, all of these important things. There is truth on that, which implies also there is falsehood or error on that. Satan is the father of lies, Jesus said in John 8, 44 and 45. But Jesus said, not only did he speak the truth, he said, I am the truth. And so the church has to uphold the truth. Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, he's praying, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so as the church, we're charged with holding to and proclaiming the truth of God as revealed in his word, especially in two areas regarding the gospel how people get saved, and regarding God's moral standards. Now, the gospel is always under attack. It has been from day one. Because everything rides on a person understanding the gospel. If they get that wrong, they're going to stand before God someday and see Jesus shake his head and say, I never knew you depart from me. The gospel is central to everything. And the gospel, as I've often pointed out, is not about how to have a happy life. Although you will have a happy life if you believe the gospel. But that happy life may mean getting your head cut off by ISIS. And the gospel is not about having a happy marriage. Although I believe you'll have a happy marriage if you follow the gospel. But... The gospel is about how, as a sinner, you can be reconciled to a holy God. And it's not by any works of righteousness you do, but only by God's undeserved favor to you, the sinner. And by believing in that gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, uh, eternal life is the free gift of God. So we've got to hold the gospel, and it is under attack. Believing the gospel, however, always leads to holy living. In that Matthew passage where Jesus said, Depart from me, I never knew you, he adds, You who practice lawlessness. These people were professing faith in Christ, but their lives were belying their faith in Christ. You know, a recent Barna survey showed that only 60% of practicing Christians believe in absolute moral truth. That's pretty shocking. Only 
And then another survey by the Pew Research Center said that 51% of Protestants in the millennial generation, um, young people in their 20s and 30s, and 36% of all evangelicals uh, believe that homosexuality should be approved by society. So about half of millennials, more than a third of all Christians nowadays, professing Christians, say God's word must be set aside and we have to believe what our culture is telling us. And if we do that, then we no longer are revealing Christ and his glory to this world because the Bible upholds the moral standards of a holy God. You see how important it is that we uphold the truth. And then finally, to reveal Christ in his glory, that means we need to be growing in Christ-like character and Christ-like conduct in our relationships. Character and relationships. Paul, in that Ephesians 5 text, after saying Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her, he continues with the goal, verse 26 and 27, so that he might sanctify her. That means set her apart unto himself as holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so to reveal Christ then to this lost world, we have to reflect Christ-likeness to the world by our behavior and by our relationships. And uh, that's summed up Christ-like character by the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 there. Now, you say, well, how is that done? Well, we have two laboratories where we display the character of Christ, or should. One is the Christian home. The Christian home should reflect Christ-like character, Christ-like relationships. Uh, That means two things should be prominent in our homes. Love and grace. Love and grace should be the dominant themes. Why do I say that? Well, that's how Christ relates to me. He loved me when I was a sinner. I didn't deserve it. And he shows me grace. He shows me grace. And that means husbands were charged to sacrificially love our wives. Even sometimes when we're frustrated or upset, we have to set that aside and figure out how can I love my wife in this situation? Parents, we've got to show our children the love and grace of Christ. And you say, well, what about discipline? Yeah, God disciplines us, of course, out of love, never out of anger, never out of anger. But the dominant theme in rearing children is to show them the love and grace of Christ. That's what keeps them. If they feel that coming through you, They're going to be drawn to the Savior who produces that in you. And then the second laboratory is right here, the church. Dwelling below with the saints you know, yes. Sometimes you don't act like saints, do they? But 
working that out together in a spirit of Christ-likeness, learning to love one another. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 13. You should know these verses. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he adds, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you need the church because it's of vital importance. Christ promised to build it. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it is through the church that he wants to manifest his love and grace and glory to this lost world. Many years ago, Apple computer was falling on hard times and uh, their young chairman, Steve Jobs, went to New York to try to convince PepsiCo, uh, their chairman, John Scully, to move west and run the struggling computer company. He was convinced that Scully could rescue Apple. They were sitting in Scully's penthouse way on the top of a skyscraper overlooking the Manhattan skyline, and Scully started to decline the offer. And he said that Apple would have to offer him this astronomical salary and benefit package, and Jobs was flabbergasted, but he agreed to it if Scully would move to California to run Apple. And Scully would only commit to being a consultant to Apple from New York. He didn't want to move. And finally, Scully, I mean, Jobs got so frustrated with Scully that he blurted out, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world? And that statement just clobbered Scully. He hadn't thought of it in those terms and, and he accepted the offer and moved west. I think many Christians don't commit themselves to the local church because they're so self-focused they don't see the church in God's program, the importance of the local church. I mean, we have a far greater purpose than making iPhones and iPads and Mac computers and all of that, as important as those things may be in our lives today. But the church is at the center of God's plan for the ages. And it's through the church that Christ is going to be glorified as the unfathomable riches of Christ are proclaimed to this lost world. And so, if you're on the sidelines, if your involvement with the church involves attending a couple of times a month when it's convenient, and that's it, and you're not committed to serving in the church, my appeal, my plea to you today is reconsider reconsider and commit yourself to the only cause that will succeed. Commit yourself to the bride of Christ whom he loved and gave himself for. Commit yourself to God's means of glorifying himself in this world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you and thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that our Savior did not regard his own life as dear, but was willing to give up the glory of heaven and come to this earth and redeem lost sinners. 
And I pray, Lord, if any are here and they've never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, today they would recognize they're going to lose big time eternally if they don't, but that you offer a full pardon and eternal life to every person who comes to the cross and believes in Jesus as the one who died for his or her sins. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ that we will proclaim next Sunday. And I pray you would use that to draw lost people to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that your church here, made up as it is of fellow sinners, would still nonetheless bring great glory and honor to our Lord and Savior as we all seek to labor for its um, prosperity. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.